0: Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. I am joined by CJ McKinney, my colleague. My name is Colin Yeo. We are covering um, updates for February 2021, um, in which there were a lot of court judgments, uh, most prominently, of course, the Shamima Begum case in the Supreme Court. But we've also got quite a few other important ones, including a, including a really important one from the Court of Appeal on child registration fees, We've got other cases on immigration detention, human rights, asylum, deportation, and a couple of arguably slightly less important judgments on on rather technical issues um, to, to finish off with. And we're ending with a report which I, I would highly recommend people sort of take a look at and, and have a think about on um, the hostile environment and a, a potential way forward from the um, rather poor state of affairs that we're in at the moment. Now if you'd like to claim um, CPD points, that's um, something that lawyers know about but others don't, um, for listening to the podcast then you can join Free Movement as a member and we have this podcast up every month and there's a, a quiz that goes with it so that you can show to your own satisfaction and the satisfaction of your regulator that you are keeping yourself up to date. Right, with that over and done with, over to CJ to get started.
1: Yes, thanks, Colin. So we'll start with the Shamima Begum case in the Supreme Court. And this is has been discussed a huge amount in, in the mainstream press and so on. So we won't go into the background. And uh, the results even is quite well known. So she's not allowed back to the UK to take part in her uh, remaining appeal against losing her British citizenship. Um, so we'll took mostly about the legal aspects of the case, which are quite technical. Um, and Colin, you've got, I think, some some recommended further reading on this, um, and also some thoughts on on what those technical issues in the case were and and what they mean.
0: Yeah, well, in the first point, uh, as as you sort of intimated, there is that she didn't lose her substantive case about whether she should be deprived of her British citizenship. So her case. Sort of carries on, we think, um although when it will actually be heard is a bit of a moot point because you know basically it's it's agreed all round that she can't meaningfully um actually argue her appeal at the moment, and you know she's stuck in some refugee camp somewhere so so she's unable to properly communicate with their lawyers and then and give evidence and so on um but the as as you say, the Supreme Court decision wasn't about that so much as technical aspects of the appeal, the jurisdiction of. Siac, um, the Special Immigration Appeals Commission, and, and by extension perhaps the Tribunal as well, although I'm not completely sure about that. Um, and um, um, and whether what happens as a result of a, a trial uh, being unfair, you know, does that lead to a sort of automatic win? And the the answer to that from the Supreme Court is a sort of resounding no. Um, you, you, you talked about recommended reading. Yeah, I, I've just been reading up on a, a few things because my, my write up was sort of on the same day and I was I think I've done rereading I think I've done a fairly good job of trying to capture what what the outcome of the case was but I'd also recommend having a look at a good piece by Alison Harvey on the EU statelessness um, website or blog um, which is very good Uh, it's you know quite technical but also quite understandable Um, there's a good piece by Devyani Prabhat on the Migration Mobilities Bristol website as well and um, I, I actually, I really enjoyed reading um, David Allen Green's take on it. He's done a sort of series on his website, Law and Policy blog, about the case. And the one that really struck me was the one where he looks at just the the way in which the decision, the judgment is framed and written by Lord Reed from the perspective of the Home Secretary. And I, I, I it's not something that really occurred to me as I was looking through the judgment myself, but I thought that was a very interesting and, and quite incisive kind of look at it
1: yeah there's been a lot of criticism from david and other lawyers uh, i think you yourself were quoting the times along this line saying that the court was basically too deferential to the government too willing to just sort of nod along with oh national security um, so i think that's been a certainly a line of criticism we've seen uh as they say it's not 100 percent clear what happens whether she can press ahead or whether her lawyers could still press ahead in her absence with the underlying appeal against deprivation of citizenship or is that just on ice indefinitely because it it would be an unfair unfair appeal as as everyone uh, accepts so uh, plenty more, uh, potentially more to come on shimima begum uh, even though she's she's there have been several high-profile judgments could be could be more to come let's move on to child citizenship fees this is to do with children who are born in the UK or maybe growing up here the m- most of their lives, but they don't have British citizenship. They can register as British citizens if they meet certain criteria, but the Home Office charges them over a thousand pounds, of which two thirds is essentially profit. So the courts have previously found this to be unlawful and now the Court of Appeals upheld that finding a uh, case taken by the Project for the Registration of Children as British Citizens, uh, Judgment Citation 2021 EWCA Civ 193. And probably we said this before when the High Court originally made this finding of unlawfulness, it's quite a narrow finding and it doesn't necessarily mean that the fees will be abolished or, or even reduced
0: yeah although it's um i think it's more positive actually that you know the way the way this is this judgement is is expressed is is even more positive than than in the high court actually um because they've won on the issue of um whether there was an, a best interests assessment in drawing up the fees and the home office's case on that has just basically collapsed i mean the home office abandoned its own evidence on this Tried to rely on parliamentary proceedings and was was slapped down quite severely by the by the court for doing that, um, and you know it's obviously you know the, the fact the home office was doing that quite clearly demonstrated that there had been no proper best interest assessment. In fact, um, but the the court of appeal, like the high court, felt bound by a prior authority. Um, on declaring that the fees were sort of substantively unlawful, so to speak, that they're kind of beyond the power, it was beyond the power of the Secretary of State to set fees at such a high level. Um, And it was a Court of Appeal authority called Williams. Um, The Court of Appeal um, looks at whether it is bound by this or whether um, a subsequent Supreme Court decision, the the unison case about employment tribunal fees, um, sort of, perhaps overrules Williams and means that it's not binding um the court of appeal concludes that that's that's not the case but for technical reasons and and the judgment is really quite sympathetic frankly to the arguments about um the vires of the of the fees and the the level they're set at but they they feel that it's really for the supreme court to to overrule any prior court of appeal authority and so to the supreme courts the case goes ultimately Um, and um you know the the hopefully the the sympathy that we've seen from the judges at the high court and court of appeal level be continued although you know the prior case we've just been talking about the Begum case just goes to show that you know one shouldn't assume and that um it is possible to to lose on technical grounds in the supreme court even though you know it it feels like quite a strong case and it feels like there's some pretty strong authorities on this particularly with the the Unison case
1: and if the supreme court were to go as far as the Charity once and rule that the fees were ultra beyond the powers of the home office. What might be the implications of that? Like a lot of people have been asking, for example, about refunds. If they've paid this fee in the past, would there be any case of getting the money back? So, if the Supreme Court were to sort of go as far as we want, would there be any case for for refunds?
0: I don't know. It's hard to know. I think there would be if 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 it turns out it was unlawful all along. Then it, it sort of logically follows as a as a matter of law that um, those fees shouldn't have been charged. But at the same time, declaring it unlawful doesn't say what the fee could or should have been. So there is some real ambiguity that i I just don't know how that that pans out ultimately um and of course the you know the the problem with judicial review is that the court isn't making its own decision about in this case what the fees can or should be it's just making a decision about whether the fees could be set at that level and so it does allow the Secretary of state potentially to come back and say okay well they're 1012 pounds now but we think You know, £1,011 is fine. Or, 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 you know, know I'm I'm being a bit facetious with that. I doubt that would be an actual outcome. And obviously, it would invite further litigation if that was the case. But, you know, we could still end up with quite high fees. And what, what we'd really like to see with this is the Home Office actually thinking about what it's doing here and why it's behaving in this way. And just, you know, this is these fees are obviously self-evidently excluding some children from citizenship. Just how is that a good idea? You know, what what, what do they think they're doing with this? Um, so we haven't seen that level of reflection from the Home Office or from the current Home Secretary. But, you know, maybe, maybe a Supreme Court win would invite that and the home office would feel that you know if if they win on principle they might review things or or if they lose then that kind of gives them the i don't know the permission or the something to 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 go ahead and do it but why they can't just get on with it and do it themselves now i I, you know i don't really don't know
1: yeah it's dragged on for a while already and it'll drag on a while longer uh let's look at immigration detention there's been an important decision on the lack of immigration advice legal aid immigration advice for migrants held in prisons pending deportation and people in prison don't get the same level of access to legal advice as people in immigration removal centers which is obviously quite unfair and uh, so the high court has decided Uh, specifically the Difference in treatment between prisons and removal centres is unjustified discrimination and the breach of multiple human rights, like several different articles uh, of the European Convention. That's SM versus Lord Chancellor 2021 EWHC 418 admin. So, what are the implications of that one? This is again judicial review, and as you were saying before, the court has declared that. The current system is unlawful, but it doesn't specify what's going to happen next.
0: No, no, I, and, and you know, the Home Office isn't quick to to respond to these kinds of judgments, and and they essentially they have to invent a new system. And as as the Home Office, I think reasonably said, um, but 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 you know, it didn't affect lawfulness and shouldn't affect lawfulness. But quite reasonably said, it's not the same if in prisons as as in immigration detention centres because migrants are spread out right across the prison estate you can't have that kind of um, physical um, sort of surgery style legal advice um, so they need to come up with another solution whether it is you know actually concentrating people to, you know, not detaining them in prison might be one idea and you could put them in immigration detention centers instead um, or, or, or some other sort of means of providing advice it doesn't have to be exactly the same though as as the um, immigration detention centre scheme, and you know, I just to finish on this one, I, I had a good illustration of how important this is um, in a in a case I was doing for bid just earlier this week with um, uh, a, a client who's detained in prison um, because of the coronavirus. They're only allowed out of their cells one hour a day at the moment, and that hour for him is before nine o'clock in the morning, which means that he cannot get access to a phone because nobody picks up the phone between eight and nine in the morning, you know, his probation officer isn't at work and, and and so on and so forth. So he's finding it absolutely impossible to actually contact anybody or do anything. And he's just sort of stuck in this situation that he's unable to, um, to influence or control in, in any way, way whatsoever, which is it's just, you know, sort of Catholic wheat kind of type type situation. It's, it's really, it's just a very transparently unfair illustration of um, how that lack of, Uh, access to advice um, works in practice
1: yeah and then of course the home office complains when people are have removal directions scheduled and they're pulled off flights at the last minute because the first time they see a lawyer is in the few days before the flight
0: yeah yeah irritating doesn't really adequately describe um, one's response to that that line of thinking
1: quite uh another Immigration detention case. This one on the issue of grace periods for releasing someone who's being detained unlawfully. So in general, the courts will allow a period of days, weeks for the Home Office to sort of make preparations to let someone out. Maybe they have to find a bail accommodation for them. More recently, uh, the Home Office has been saying, "Oh, well, coronavirus, everything's difficult. We need more time. Uh, please judge." Uh in this case, the high courts responded by saying, Okay, you can have 48 hours to release someone uh, coronavirus or no coronavirus.
0: Yeah, I've got nothing really to add on this one. I, I I reading the um write-up, I think it was um Alex who wrote this one up for us, um apparently um the progression panel decided he should be released in November 2019, but still detained January 2021, which is pretty pretty astonishing. Um so you can see why a judge would have not a huge amount of um, sympathy for, for sort of further delays by that point.
1: And finally, we have a case where the Home Office breached a court order, a mandatory injunction, no less, uh, that it should house an asylum seeker by a certain date. Uh, it didn't do it. Uh, the High Court was not impressed. And the Mr. Justice Chamberlain threatened the Secretary of State uh, personally with contempt of court proceedings. That was the case of Mohammed's 2021 EWHC 240 admin. So this was on the 9th of February and I don't think we've heard anything about it since. So I dare say um Ms. Patel has probably gotten away with this on this occasion. Um and there was no real prospect that, you know, a judge was going to throw the Secretary of State in jail or anything like it. But I suppose it is trying to draw a line draw a line in the sand here. You can, you know, miss your filing deadlines in the tribunal and, you know, get away with a lot, but breach of a mandatory high court injunction is a step too far
0: yeah it's um and th- this does happen from time to time it's not um it's not normal I, of course there's no prospect of Pretty patel going to prison or something as, as as you would occasionally get in in a sort of contempt case um but um yeah it's it's symptomatic of a certain disregard by the home office for the courts and tribunals and they, they do seem to have this culture of of not quite appreciating how important a a court order should be. Although, to be fair, we don't see this that often. It is relatively unusual. So perhaps I'm being a bit unfair there.
1: Turning to human rights, there's been an interesting case from Northern Ireland, unreported judgment, Ray Omar Mahmood. And Mr. Mahmood was an asylum seeker who was evicted from his accommodation and ended up on the streets uh, for all of last winter. Uh, a lot of, lot of human suffering there. He'd been refused asylum and was out of appeal rights. Uh, and he'd also had multiple further submissions rejected as not representing a fresh asylum claim. So he was on his eighth set of further submissions uh, were pending when the Home Office evicted him. And the High Court in Northern Ireland finding that basically you can't do that. Uh, you can't kick someone out while the further submissions are still pending. Um, and you have the, the sort of chronology seemed to be that you need to sort of reject the further submissions and simultaneously evict um, in case there's something in the further submissions. Um, and a breach of Mr. Mumu's Article 3 rights uh, was found as a result of him being uh, made street homeless. And Colin, you were saying that's quite rare that the courts will find a breach of Article 3 in these kind of circumstances.
0: Yeah, and there have been a handful of um, findings of Article Three breaches. For example, with immigration detention, and um, it's not, we're not quite sure—at least I'm not quite sure anyway—why the Home Office eventually, in about two thousand, about two thousand seventeen, sort of properly reviewed immigration detention you know, with the Shaw report and everything. Something triggered that, and one of the possibilities is that it was this kind of trickle of, of findings of breaches of Article Three in vulnerable cases. Um, I don't think we actually say in the write-up that it is Article 3. We say breach of um, human rights. I was just sort of looking through to see which human right was that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, a proper finding of cruel and inhuman treatment or, or, or punishment. Um, so um, and that, that is quite a severe finding.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To be fair, I don't think the judgment is particularly explicit about that. But I was talking to a counsel in the case who says the damages hearing is coming up and he was explicit that Article 3 was the what, what the finding was even though the, the judgment itself is, is kind of coy. Um, another case then from the European Court of Human Rights finding the UK in breach of Article 4 of the European Convention. That's also, I think, a rare finding. The second time that's happened, UK in breach of Article 4 specifically. Um, and the reason was uh, pro- how the UK ha- has handled Prosecutions of trafficking victims. So the claimants here were Vietnamese teenagers at the time, uh, found in cannabis farms and prosecuted for drug offences, even though they were judged to be trafficking victims. The prosecutors essentially disagreeing with the trafficking assessment, and they got fifteen thousand pound, probably fifteen thousand euros each uh, compensation, which is I think quite high for Strasbourg. Uh, in case of VCL and AN against the United Kingdom application numbers. and 74603-12 and it got quite a a bit of attention because obviously quite a a stark finding against the UK authorities but on the other hand the convictions in question were over a decade ago uh, long before the statutory defense against prosecution for trafficking victims which came in 2015 these convictions were like 2009-10 so a lot of profile but I don't know how hugely relevant it is to the trafficking system today
0: yeah i and as you say there is now a statutory defense and um you know we've seen the court of appeal in in some previous the the criminal division of the court of appeal in some previous cases been quite critical of prosecution of asylum seekers and trafficking victims um where the authorities have sort of failed to understand the, the full background circumstances and law on on this stuff um yeah, I, I I don't know how much the ongoing significance it it has. I think some people are saying that it does, um, but I, you know there is now a proper statutory defence which there wasn't previously. Whether lawyers are aware of that defence and properly plead it is is. You know, unknown I think and it's a little perhaps unknowable um, and also you know whether prosecutors are also properly aware of that defense and therefore don't bring the prosecutions in the first place um, and I, I don't know what the stats are for, for the kind of level of prosecutions and so on but um, you know certainly welcome to see this kind of level of attention and um, as you say so some fairly they're not massive awards because Strasbourg very rarely does give big financial awards but they're they're bigger than we normally see which is um very welcome for these individuals
1: absolutely asylum then and the case of al siri 2021 ewca Civ 113 so this is yasser al siri who's quite a high profile asylum seeker he has a terrorism conviction and the home office would really really like him not to be a refugee in the uk But the first-tier tribunal decided in 2015 that he is, and he's not excluded from refugee protection, despite uh, the evidence the tribunal saw of his uh, extremist views. Despite that tribunal decision, the Home Office refused to grant refugee status, which should, I think, normally follow as a matter of course from a a judgment that you are a refugee. And instead, it gave him restricted leave uh, for six months. So Mr Al-Siri had to go back to court to get that six-month grant quashed and to argue that he's entitled to proper refugee status and the court of appeal has now found in his favour the home office had no new evidence that wasn't before the tribunal back in 2015 so it can't start reopening uh, tribunal decisions that it doesn't like is the essence of that
0: yeah it's a, it's a I, I didn't realize that mr al-suri was still going in litigation terms but i'm, I'm not at the same time surprised by that because the home office does have a bit of a reputation for just never giving up um, on on cases where they really, really don't like the person concerned. On the Af- the Afghan hijackers spring to mind. I think that litigation may still be be rumbling on. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, you know, they, they entered the UK in 2000. We're talking about really long term, just repeat litigation. Um, you know, despite <laughs> despite repeated court judgments. And w- one of the things that that jumps out in this one is that the the home office was saying that the appropriate remedy shouldn't have been to, the appropriate remedy to the home office not implementing an appeal was a, a further appeal not not an application for judicial review and that a further appeal um w- was actually an adequate remedy and therefore the there's the, no the jurisdiction to hear the judicial review claim and um happily the um, the court was unimpressed by that argument um because you know as soon as you say it out loud hopefully you see that it doesn't really work very well in terms of um it being an adequate remedy you know where where the home office themselves are refusing to implement um, essentially the findings of a, uh, of a tribunal judge. To go to another tribunal judge again, uh, it's just a bit bonkers. Um, but, you know, we, we, the, to be fair, the court, court could have just sort of used, used a, a technical sort of line on that, but um, weren't having any of it. And um, maybe maybe this is the end of the road for Mr. Alser, maybe he is going to get proper status. Um, I doubt it. I'm sure they'll come up with something else, some other excuse, but
1: um, we'll see. I think there was a figure in the judgment of 27 years he's been at this litigation, which uh, tells its own story. So, Uh, Another asylum case on credibility and documentary evidence. And the first finding in that was that if the Home Office is going to reject someone's documents as forged. So in this case, there was a warrant for the appellant's arrest in China. Uh, what they thought was fake. And um, sometimes there's an obligation on the Home Office to verify the documents uh, before rejecting them to make their own inquiries. So I suppose in this case to check with the Ch- Chinese authorities, um, whether this is a, an actual restaurant or not, but only in exceptional circumstances. Uh, and those weren't present in the facts of this case. So that's the verification obligation. There was also some comments in the judgment on credibility, which uh, Colin will be music to your ears, similar to what we spoke about on the last episode, actually really emphasizing that this notion of credibility uh, isn't uh, as important in asylum cases as the home office makes out. You have to work out exactly how credibility is relevant to the asylum claim in question, rather than just taking a look at the person and saying, uh, they don't seem credible in general. We don't ref- we don't rate him as a genuine refugee. It's like, okay, what what is the relevance of credibility to this case, and, and then go on to to make a finding
0: yeah it's really interesting and and um i hadn't actually seen this case when i was um um writing up I've, I've just done a sort of um think piece for the blog on on credibility as a concept and hadn't actually seen this case when i was writing it up slightly embarrassingly so i would definitely have made reference to it if i had because it, it, they're saying a sort of I'm not going quite as far as me perhaps unsurprisingly but saying a similar thing you know it's not just credibility isn't some sort of uh it's not some sort of magic Thing that determines the outcome of appeals you actually got to think about what you really mean by it and and what role it plays in a case and that, that you know, it's welcome to see some 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 thinking about that at least and some engagement with that issue from the tribunal here
1: absolutely and that case was qc verification of documents mibanga duty china 2021 uk ut 33 iac And a tribunal case as well on deportation, and in particular, what happens to someone who re-enters the UK in breach of an existing deportation order and then makes a human rights claim to remain in the UK. The immigration rules are unsympathetic to people like this, as you might expect, and they say that the person should be re-deported unless there are, quote-unquote, very exceptional circumstances, which is obviously an extremely hard test to meet. But the Upper Tribunal has found that that bit of the immigration rules goes beyond the relevant legislation. So section 117C of the Nationality Immigration and Asylum Act 2002. And so if you meet one of the human rights exceptions to deportation in section 117C, uh, you should be able to stay and the Home Office can't apply this tougher test of very exceptional circumstances from the immigration rules. So effectively, that provision uh, should just be ignored. Uh, it seems to be defending, and that's the case of Bikanu 2021 UKUT34 IAC.
0: Yeah, the, the deportation bit of the immigration rules is just a total mess, basically. And the Court of Appeal has tried to make sense of this in the past, um you know sort of looking at what stage of the deportation stuff and they're trying to make sense of something that just doesn't make sense ultimately because what's happened is the old deportation rules haven't been deleted but new ones which are basically incompatible have been inserted and it's not that the language doesn't make sense. You know, the old ones are actually fairly well written. They're written in plain language that you can understand. It's just the structure of it. They they just they just don't work together, basically. So you've got this real mess um, at that part of the immigration rules. And yeah, the tribunal solution here is just to ignore it rather than to try and pretend that there's some sort of scheme or purpose to it, which there just, just isn't in reality.
1: And a couple of fairly technical but potentially important cases to conclude. The first is to do with the 14-day grace period for overstayers in paragraph 39E of the rules. And the Court of Appeal has found that this grace period can't be relied on twice in a row. And the only way to illustrate what they mean by that, I think, is on with the facts of the case. So we had Mr. Kelsey who made a visa extension application that was refused on the 27th of February. So he applied again on the 8th of March, so within this 14-day grace period. And that application was also refused, so he made another application within 14 days. uh, But this time, the grace period didn't apply. So I suppose that third application was rejected on the basis that he was now an overstayer, couldn't rely on the grace period. So that's the case of others, 2021 Civ 184. And it seems, it's, it's kind of hard to follow, but I guess it, it is important because people do sort of string applications together and they vary them and they apply again. There's sort of this juggling of of successive applications and the case is, I guess, a reminder that there's limits maybe on how creative you can get with that.
0: Yeah, and I can't say I was surprised by the outcome on this one. I imagine quite a few other people weren't as well. Um, but and from a substantive point of view, it doesn't really make sense that um, you know somebody who you kind of you you ideally want your rules to be designed in such a way that somebody who gets refused for relatively technical reasons can make another application or isn't permanently excluded from status in some way or that somebody who makes an application that fails can apply on on other grounds Without having to leave the country, because it's just you know for the, from the Home Office point of view, they think that's no problem at all. But in terms of you know your actual convenience and whatever it is that you're doing at that point in time, if you've got a job or a business or something like that, then leaving it and then reapplying from abroad is just impossible. It's sort of effectively abandoning your application, actually. Um, but but the rules are not designed in that way. They, they they don't have those kind of real world scenarios in mind, and it's a good example of where the Home Office sort of does just apply quite a strict um, quite a strict approach in these situations
1: absolutely and then another case that we also thought was really technical but it attracted lots of readers and i 'm still not quite sure why the headline is on the article on the website is indefinite leave to remain can be revoked but not cancelled. Um, because that's what the High Court found. So Mr. Justice Jay, uh, he said that Article 13.6 of the Immigration Leave to Enter and Remain Order 2000 does not allow someone's ILR to be cancelled. However, you can revoke ILR under Section 76 of the uh, Nationality Immigration and Asylum Act 2002. So, uh, Revocation, yes. Cancellation, no. And that did matter in this particular case because the Home Office had relied on this dud power in the 2000 order, and that meant that the uh, appellant's ILR had never been cancelled, so his reentry to the UK was lawful. I guess if they'd used the revocation power instead, it would have been um, it would have been fine, but they didn't, and so so he won. I do kind of struggle to see why so many people read the article why it was relevant to other people i don't know if you have theories Colin. but the case citation c1 and secretary of state for the home department 2021 EWHC 242
0: admin uh, mystery to me as well cj and and that's true of readership of the blog generally frankly uh, we, we you know we're getting like ten thousand hits a day or something on various different articles and and i don't know who these people are um but um yeah, it, it's, it's a good example of immigration law being too complicated because the Home Office got this wrong. They could have got it right, I think, as you say, um, but they didn't. They used the wrong power. And then because they detained this guy, that detention un, under that power, that was then unlawful. I think he's probably going to be entitled to damages, although I imagine the Home Office will be saying that there's no causation because they could have detained him anyway if the thing had been That's quite a complicated legal argument we don't need to go there particularly. Um but you know this is basically a screw up by the home office who just didn't understand their own powers, didn't understand immigration law and therefore left it open for this guy to to win his case.
1: Yeah, but I mean you can really see in the judgments um Mr Justice Jay is very cerebral. Was a very cerebral QC, and uh, now in the High Court, and you know his finding on untangling all the immigration law was just really tentative in the end he kind of goes i don't i really struggled with this and i'm not sure but i think this is what the law is which is you know just a sign of how overcomplicated it is if someone like that uh, can't can't understand it but uh, anyway that is the last of our cases and if that's all you listen to the podcast for then feel free to switch off um but some bonus discussion of immigration policy there's been this new reports from the IPBR think tank, a uh, centre-left think tank with, with good ties to the Labour Party, and they looked at how you could end the hostile environment for migrants, which is obviously something that's practically everyone working in immigration wants to do, but they're sort of thinking about it you know, politically. What could you get Labour to commit to, you know, just abolish everything and, and go back turn the clock back 10 years is maybe a hard sell uh what would you replace it with what exactly would you repeal questions like that and uh some possible answers and, and colony you were impressed with what they came up with in their report
0: yeah we, we've had a few blog posts on 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 free movement recently about these kinds of issues or trying to think through how you sort of campaign and what you campaign on and what's realistic and what's not and so on um and i i just i was impressed with this report um i i've you know it doesn't propose entirely scrapping the hostile environment in the sense of in-country immigration controls um but it does talk about ending the what i think is basically inbuilt inherent racial discrimination in the way that the laws currently operate because they because checks aren't actually mandatory people are able to exercise discretion not to carry out the checks And they exercise their discretion on white people. So, um, you know, this is kind of it's almost inevitable that these the checks, as they are currently designed, are are racially discriminatory. Um, And and that's you know that's really disastrous. I think, especially in housing, it's it's bad news in employment as well. Although big employers. You know they're used to racial race equality laws and obligations. They've got an idea of equal opportunities, um, so you know they they do basically carry out mandatory checks, or they carry out the checks as if they're mandatory when in fact they're not. So it's not as much of a problem, I feel, in the employment field as it is in other fields. Um and, and this suggests a, a different way forward where the checks are effectively mandatory, but they're not carried out by the Home Office. They're not seen as being immigration checks as such. They could be done through a reformed national insurance system or or, or something like that. Um and, and the other sort of standout bit for me was the the improved routes to regularisation. I, I personally I I'm all in favor of a, a proper amnesty. You know, if we've got an unknown number of people who are living here without permission at the moment. It could be you know, higher estimates, like 1.2 million or something like that, lower estimates, about 600. Nobody really knows, though. It's, a, it, it's thought to be a lot of people. Um, and I just don't think you can, you know, it's just don't think it's acceptable in our society to have a really big, unlawful um underclass in that way it's it's who aren't forced out of the country they're not removed either removals are an all time low even before the pandemic um but instead they need to be granted status and you know the problem with the ippr proposals are to is that it takes too long. It's just it's a it's a lengthy process. They talk about improving the 20-year long residence thing at what used to be 14 years. Perhaps it could go back to that, although they don't say. Uh, also having some sort of vulnerability route as well, um, which would be which would be useful. Um, but you know, it would take a long time essentially to regularize the the population. I'd I'd be in favor of just sort of doing it in a big bang, but at the same time, um, that's politically very contentious. You know, we have had big figures like Boris Johnson talk about it in the past, but um, you can see how um, that y- it would leave you very open to attack on immigration if you were to propose something like that. So, you know, this this is a kind of um, second best, but, but, you know, over time, good um, set of proposals, I think.
1: Yeah, and possibly a propitious political moment in this uh, public uh, concern about immigration, people uh, telling pollsters that's kind of the number one issue facing the country has gone down. Loads and loads uh, since the referendum, and and even further in the last couple of years. So you know, getting getting some reforms in, maybe it's a, a better moment for that than than has been recently.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. And I, I remember what what you know, with all the fuss over asylum over the summer, with all the small boats and so on. I felt like sort of progress might potentially be going backwards and there was a blip actually you know the the opinion poll stuff tends to to trail events so you only find out afterwards sort of how people have reacted to it effectively you know were people really that bothered about all those headlines or or weren't they and and they weren't generally speaking there was a bit of a blip in concern over the summer as you know just think about that kind of deluge of tabloid headlines about this and Farage patrolling the Kent you know Kent beaches and stuff like that Uh, and actually people don't seem to have been that bothered about it it doesn't seem to have ratcheted up immigration concern particularly um it's hard to see the current home secretary sort of leading meaningful reform and maybe i'm being unfair to her in saying that i don't know um but it does feel like there is more of an opportunity for deep rooted immigration, meaningful immigration reform than there has been previously. And you know, I'm very sceptical that the the gov- current governing party is capable of doing that. But, but you know, it's, it feels like it could happen in a way that it it hasn't felt like it could happen for, for previous years.
1: Even just in terms of, I suppose, getting the opposition to sign up for a set of reforms that they would have been too nervous about a few years ago would be uh, progress, laying the ground for the future, perhaps?
0: yeah uh, you know it's something of an improvement on on you know your control immigration mugs anyway um so yeah okay well on that note i think we better better wrap up so um thanks for listening everybody and we will be back next month goodbye